This episode of Access Utah first aired in 2018. Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Part elegy, part ode, part investigative science. The new book, River of Lost Souls, tells the gripping story of the 2015 Gold King mine disaster that turned the Animus River in southwestern Colorado orange with sludge and toxic metals for more than 100 miles downstream, wreaking havoc on cities, farms, and the Navajo Nation along the way. What was really behind the 2015 Gold King mine disaster in southwestern Colorado? Well, the new book, River of Lost Souls, by Jonathan P. Thompson, tells that story. And uh, we bring uh, on with us uh, Jonathan Thompson uh, from his home in uh, Bulgaria for the hour. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. Glad to be here. So you uh, you grew up in this area, right, southwestern Colorado? I did, yep. I uh, I. I was born and raised there in Durango, and uh, actually my ancestors go back quite a ways, uh, six, six generations. So, um, yeah, it's, it's pretty much home for me. And then uh, got on with um, the Silverstone Standard and Minor Newspaper, and uh, then went from there for High Country News. You're still a contributing editor there, I believe. Uh, yeah, that's correct. Yep. I, uh, I got my start in journalism. Um, at the Silverton Standard and the, new, uh, and the Miner is what it's called, the newspaper there that's now 100 and uh, more than 150 years old, I believe, that newspaper is. And it's published every week since 1874. Hmm. Um, and, uh, and so I worked there for a while, and then I owned it for a while, and then I moved on to High Country News. Oh, you owned it for a while? What, what, yeah, was, what was that like, being a, the owner of a weekly newspaper it was really hard <laughs> uh it's a tiny town silverton colorado um it's about maybe 500 year-round residents and uh so it's pretty small to have a newspaper in the first place um and so it, it wasn't like i had much of a staff besides myself uh so i had to do pretty much everything and um in a place like Silverton, a small town like that, that's kind of surrounded by mountains and not easy to get in and out of, especially in the winter, it can get pretty, uh, it can be kind of like a pressure cooker, especially politically. So being the newspaper guy is kind of always being in the hot seat. Yeah, I want to get into that. Uh, and uh, typical of, uh, of some of the fights, uh, the political tension in, in many uh, parts of the West. Um, before we go further, uh, I want to mention that um, the new, new book is out, River of Lost Souls. Subtitle is The Science, Politics, and Greed Behind the Gold King Mine Disaster. And Jonathan Thompson will uh, be uh, doing several events on the book tour. So on Monday, April 2nd, 6 p.m., he'll be at Booked on 25th bookstore there in Ogden. 6 p.m. is the start of that event. Then on Tuesday, April 3rd, 7 p.m., the King's English Bookshop in Salt Lake City. And Thursday, April 5th, 7 p.m., Back of Beyond Books in Moab. So you'll have an opportunity early next month to uh, interact with Jonathan Thompson. So before we jump into this, uh, and you know, I think we all saw this on the news, but uh, you really make it present in the book, and, and you go behind the scenes of this this uh, disaster. Um Bulgaria. You're talking to me right now from Bulgaria. Um, what's what's it like? Uh, it's an interesting place, actually. Bulgaria is. Uh, I before I moved here, I had never really thought that much about it. 
Um, and so I've been pleasantly surprised since getting here. Uh, it's very mountainous, much more so than I thought, and a lot more wildland than I expected. So that's pretty cool. Um, interesting culture, interesting interesting place, for mm. sure. All your life you've uh, gotten out in the backcountry. Do you do the same in Bulgaria, or do you stick to the city? I actually do get out of the backcountry. That's one of the one of the things that I really like about it, and that I was pleasantly surprised about. But the, this capital city, Sofia, is right next to a big mountain, Mount Vitusha, and it's covered with trails, um, great great single track trails for for mountain biking or hiking or running or whatever. So it's really nice to be able to get get out of the city. How would you how you briefly contrast uh, that that area? Getting out in uh, in in the, in the country versus uh, southwestern Colorado. Well, uh, there's n- there's not much match to Durango and Silverton and, and southwest Colorado when it comes to being able to get out of town and onto trails. Um, so you know it's it's not quite the same as that, but um, it's easier than most places in the United States or anywhere really to get to get out of the city and onto the trail. So so I'm pretty happy with it. Hmm. Uh, so I want to have you uh, tell me about this is a gripping story. You were there in Durango when it happened. Uh, I think we, you know, saw this on the news. Th- these incredible pictures of the Animas River turned bright orange. Um, so, so, so tell us, uh, take us inside the events of August fifth, twenty fifteen. Yeah. So basically, you know, it was a beautiful. Beautiful August day. Um, it had been kind of a wet summer, so things were super green, and the, the mountains were filled with wildflowers. The rivers were running higher than they usually do at that time of year, so more people were on them, playing, uh, rafting, tubing, kayaking, stand-up paddleboarding, you name it. And um, these EPA contractors uh, decided to start looking at, at the Gold King Mine, which had been a problem polluter for a number of years at that point. Um, for about a decade or a little bit more, it had been kind of spewing out around 250 gallons per minute of acidic, heavy metal-loaded water um, into the watershed. And they knew that they had to do something with it, and they didn't really know exactly what they were going to do with it, but um, on that day, they, they decided to go up and just kind of poke around in a little bit to kind of assess the situation. And um, they something they, they did know and they did realize was that part of the ceiling of the mine had collapsed. So this you know this is a hole in the in the side of the mountain, um, you know, not not too much taller than a the human being or whatever, and your typical kind of mine opening. And um, some years earlier, a, uh, the ceiling had collapsed in the mine, and it had held back a lot of this water from draining out. Um, and the EPA guys knew that. They knew that this had happened, but they didn't understand the extent of it, of how much water had built up back there inside the mine. And so when they started poking around with it, it was like uh, it, 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 it was turned out to be pretty bad. They, they kind of scooped a little hole into it, and the, the water just came gushing out. And just the, the dam that had been in there, the kind of natural dam, was blown out. And this horrifying orange water kind of just blasted out of the mine and um, washed away a big part of the mine dump 
which is that waste rock that gets put below the mine, kind of, and that's filled with a lot of metals and and problematic uh, material as well. And then it washed down um, into the the nearest tributary, the Cement Creek, and then into the Animus River in Silverton, and then it made its 50-mile journey to Durango. Um, and it took about 24 hours for it to get to the outskirts of Durango. Um, and it took about 24 hours, too, for really people to, to hear about it and find out about it downstream, um, which was one of the things that, that kind of was brought up later. Why, why didn't people find out about it earlier when it first happened? Because it was, at first we thought it was about a million gallons of water. It turns out it was 3.5 million gallons of water. Um, and so I found out that next morning, August 6th, that this was coming. So I, I rushed out and drove up stream until I got to where it was orange. And it was a, a shocking, shocking sight to behold for sure. Um, especially given, given the fact that it was in August. So everything was very green uh, on the river banks. And then you look into the river and it was this tang, kind of like a mixture of tang and maybe some yellow mustard sort of color um, and very thick and kind of viscous almost. And uh, that, you know, set off the alarm bells downstream in Durango. The river was closed to all the boaters within a few hours or so. By that afternoon, the river, which had been swarming with people that morning, was empty, which is just unheard of. Of course, you know, in the summertime, the, the river is the recreational heart of the town. And uh, people were standing on the bridges waiting for this thing to come, and, and people didn't really know what it was or understand or anything. So it was kind of a, a scary, you know, scary thing, especially since people didn't know what was coming or what it might do or how it might affect them. Uh, there's a picture, I think I saw this in High Country News, um, of kayakers um, you know, floating on, on top of this orange sludge. And the quote, uh, they, they say, well, you know, we've, we've seen the river different colors. We, we just thought this was, you know, kind of another, uh, another problem that would pass, I suppose. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So that, that was a picture that, um, Jerry McBride, who's a photographer with the Durango Herald, the local newspaper took, he went up there, you know, as soon as he found out that it was coming and to this place called Baker's Bridge, which is a pretty iconic spot, these big granite cliffs going straight down into the river, and the river is really narrow there. And so, first of all, it looked dramatic there, maybe more so than in other places. But second of all, there's these kayakers floating on top of it. And I think, you know, they were just out kayaking, and this slug came along, and they didn't realize what it was or no, and then... My understanding is that when the photographer told them, yeah, they they were pretty freaked out and got out of there pretty quickly. But yeah, but it, it's also a good point that they brought up, which is that um, the river does turn colors, and and things have happened in the past, and and that's one of those things that um, kind of inspired me to wrote, write the book was that my initial thought when I heard about it was like, oh, here you know, here comes another one. Is it, this isn't a unique situation because the uh, the legacy of mining in that area and the headwaters around the end of the Animus River is deep. It goes way back. It's very long. And the legacy of pollution that it's created and that is put into that river also goes way back. And 
So as a kid, I can remember when tailings ponds would be breached and the river would turn a pretty nasty color. It wasn't quite as orange as it was this time, but you know, it would be, it would be bad and, and fish would get killed and, and, uh, people would have to stay out of the river and that sort of thing. And so, um, so there was that point and, and like the kayakers were saying, you know, it's not, uh, it wasn't an isolated event. And so one of the things I wanted to write about was that fact, the fact that it, it was not isolated either in Durango or Silverton or as far as that's concerned in mining country as a whole, which covers, you know, most of the mountain west. Yeah, uh, you know, one one thing you, you've mentioned is Bingham Canyon Mine. I'm not sure if this is in the book or the articles I've been reading, uh, where I, I, I can't remember how much you mentioned it. There's a lot of contaminated water underneath Bingham Canyon Mine here in Utah. Yeah. Um, basically, you know, so every mine pretty much um, creates acid mine drainage. I mean, maybe not every mine, but almost every mine, because this, this um, acid mine drainage is created by the the union of oxygen, uh, water, and iron pyrite. And iron pyrite is pretty much everywhere that metals are that you might mine, um, sulfites. And so when those things come together, they create acid. And um, so a mine, what a mine does is it introduces the oxygen to it, to this situation. So previously, before the mine was there, the water is running through, you know, springs, and it's running through cracks through the earth, but there's no oxygen there, so it's passing by this um, iron pyrite, and it's not having any effect. It's coming out as basically pure water. But once you introduce oxygen, you uh, you create this chemical reaction, and you get acid out of it. And... Um, also, when you dig a mine into a mountain, whether it's an underground mine or an open pit mine like that, you create a sort of a vacuum where the, the groundwater, which is seeking the path of least resistance, is drawn to it. So you get a lot of this groundwater going into this mine. So you get basically just the, the perfect recipe for acid mine drainage. So you get acidic water, and that acid then dissolves the heavy metals that are that are obviously there because that's what you're mining. Um, whether it's gold or silver or copper or manganese or zinc or what have you, and that gets into the water as well. And all of that's toxic. You know, that's bad for fish. It's bad for pretty much anybody um, to, to various degrees. So lead is, of course, terrible. Zinc, mercury is very bad. So the Bigham Canyon mine is a gigantic mine um, that displaced huge amounts of water, creates huge amounts of acid mine drainage, most of that water they have to pump out, you know, constantly. Um, but some of it also goes into the groundwater, and you end up uh, with this huge groundwater plume that spreads out from the Bingham Canyon mine into surrounding lands. And, and I can't even remember how big it is. I, I do have a figure in my article and in the book of how large it is, but it's, it's enormous. You know, it kind of defies comprehension. In fact, because of what you were just said, this, this explanation you were, you were giving us, uh, this quote stands out to me. You, you write, acid mine drainage may be the perfect pollutant. Yeah. Yeah, and it's because um, it's not added to the, uh, it's not something that's spilled. 
you know, so that was something that when the Gold King mine disaster first happened, a lot of the coverage said that there was this toxic waste spill, but it's not really like that. It's no, nothing was added to this stuff. This, it's all natural. It's just that when humans went in and put a mine there, they, they hijacked the system and that's what created this acid mine drainage. So yeah, it's kind of a, a perfect, perfect pollutant or a perfect poison because of, of that. It, it kind of comes out of nothing. Mm. Um, and there's a problem worldwide, uh, right? All this, all this polluted water, uh, you know, what do we do with it? And every once in a while, and, and uh, this has been called, I'm not sure if this is your phrase or the, the publicist, a, a charismatic disaster. I think what's meant there is that uh, perhaps this had uh, the potential to uh, make present before us what we sort of hide from ourselves, right? Um, that we, we have all of this pollution around us and we don't think about it yeah that's that's exactly right um when when the gold king disaster occurred i was busy writing a, a story about um, the four corners methane hotspot which is this plume of methane that's sitting over the four corners area um and methane is a very potent greenhouse gas uh it's much stronger than carbon dioxide so really you know when you think about it all this methane going into the air is, is potentially extremely harmful. But, of course, you can't see methane. You can't smell it. And so here's this methane cloud hanging out out there. And meanwhile, the river turns orange for, you know, a week. And people are far more alarmed and, and far more upset about the river turning orange. And, and not to downplay that, but, uh, you know, it's really not as big of a disaster as what's happening in our climate, you know, um, with this, with methane, with CO2, with, with other pollutants as well. And so you kind of think, geez, you know, what if, what if just for a day or two methane was colored bright pink? Uh, that might wake some people up. Yeah. Uh, we, we would, we would see it, right? <laughs> Literally and uh, metaphorically. Um, wh- why do you think we don't? Um, you know, I, I think, I think there's a lot of reasons for that. I mean, I, I think one reason is that, uh, you, I mean, literally we don't see it, of course, so, so there's that, but on a more figure of level, something like the Gold King spill, you were able to see that literally, but also it was kind of isolated in this, in this one place. It was isolated within a river, even though it went for over a hundred miles. It was, we could focus on it, and we know where it came from. We, it came from this one mine, and we could pin blame on one person or maybe a group of people um, for it. But when you've got something like uh, climate change, and you've got something like a methane hotspot that's sitting up over here, over the four corners, which comes from a multitude of sources, and you can't see it, and the impacts of it, are going to be spread out over years and years, maybe centuries. Uh, it's much harder to get just wrap your mind around it. Um, plus, there's not just one kind of bad guy or one kind of place to focus on. It's, it's much more diffuse. So it's harder to, I think, harder to wrap our minds around of, and it's harder to uh, it's harder to kind of find the bad guy that we can 
that we can go after, especially because that bad guy, you know, is pretty much all of us who use oil or gas, which is everybody. So, mm-hmm. so it, it's it's tough. If you just joined us, we're talking with Jonathan Thompson. He's author of a new book called River of Lost Souls, The Science, Politics, and Greed Behind the Gold King Mine Disaster. It's out from Torrey House Press. So let's take a break, and when we come back, uh, more with Jonathan Thompson, River of Lost Souls. We're back with Jonathan Thompson. River of Lost Souls is the title of the uh, book. The subtitle is Science, Politics, and Greed Behind the Gold King Mine Disaster. By the way, the uh, the website for Jonathan Thompson for the book is riveroflostsouls.com. So uh, and we're, we're talking to uh, Jonathan Thompson from his home in uh, Bulgaria. So Jonathan Thompson, uh, title of the book, it's also what the, what the Animus River is called, right? River of Lost Souls? Uh, yeah, that's correct. Um, sort of. I, I should make one caveat. So I grew up thinking it was called the River of Lost Souls, the Rio de las Animas Perdidas, which is uh, Spanish for River of Lost Souls. And that's kind of the, the what everybody believes. It's, and the legend was that uh, a Spanish explorer came through in, in the uh, 1760s, and he came upon it and the legend goes that maybe his men were lost in the river, they drowned in the river, or maybe um, some mute scouts were drowned in the river or something like that. Um, and that's why he called it the River of Lost Souls. It turns out that he did not call it that. He called it the River of Souls. And somewhere a little bit later, probably in the late 19th century or the early 20th century, somebody added the lost the lost part of it, so that the souls were lost rather than uh, just being souls. So uh, anyway, that name stuck, and kind of that legend grew up around it, which is not true. Um, He just called it River of Souls possibly because, um, well, nobody knows why exactly. might be because it was running pretty high, and and so he said it was saying it had a lot of soul to it. might have been because he saw that the... uh, the remains of the civilizations that had been there before. Um, the Pueblo civilization had had built some Pueblos just above where he crossed the river, so maybe that was it. Nobody really knows, but anyway, the lost part got added later, and it stuck, and it became the name for it. And I, um, I decided that because that's what it's known as now, um, that I would I would stick with that mm. name as well. 
even though it's maybe not entirely historically accurate. Mm-hmm. Um, we were talking before the break uh, about the fact that we don't, we often don't see what's really happening. Uh, maybe we don't know about it. It's it's kind of hidden from viewer, or if we do learn about it, we'd forget about it soon. Um, but a couple of examples really stood out to me. Uh, one example, the I guess a, a certain point around the mine, uh, Colorado wildlife officials declared these streams and rivers, at least in that area, dead. You know, it's dead water, right? Fish can't live in it. Can't you know, nothing can live there. So that's pretty stark. Then another example is the uh, there's some tension between Durango and uh, Silverton upstream. Um, with with the pollutants coming into the water that uh, the people are drinking there, the Animas River. At a certain point, uh, Durango just decided to go to a, the next river over to get their water. Yeah, so, uh, you know, this goes way back to er- the early 1900s, and what was happening then is that was actually pollution that you could see is, it was happening then, and, and that tailings, um, which is the the fine sand-like material that's basically the waste that's left over after you mill the ore and get the, you know, you get the metals out and then you have all this stuff left over, which is this really fine, um, they call it milk slime sometimes. It's fine. It's still acidic, just like the acid mine drainage. It's still got a lot of the metals in it. And it's, it, when it goes into the water, it, it silts it up pretty heavily so it can definitely smother fish. And that stuff, um, for years and years, the mines all over the West simply dumped that straight into the rivers. In fact, a lot of times they would be um, located next to a water source partially for that reason, so that they could just dump it there and not have to think about it anymore. And so they were dumping in into the river near Silverton, and then Durango was, you know, showing up down there 45 miles downstream. And so... There was actually a big fight in the late 1800s, early 1900s for a long time where Durango was threatening to sue the mine owners and they were trying to figure out how to get it shut down and and try to get them to stop doing this. And the mine owners, in what is kind of a eternal argument or eternal position of, of industry, they said, hey, if you, if you try to make us control our pollution, we're going to go out of business. And then what's going to happen to all the all the jobs, what's going to happen to the economy? You guys will be ruined too. And, uh, you know, the, the argument worked. Durango said, oh, well, in that case, we'll just get our water from somewhere else. Um, and so they they drew it from, even though Durango is located on the Animus River, like it actually the town straddles it, they went and got their water from um, several miles away from a different drainage that was not impacted by mining. And uh, in so doing, they kind of gave up the Animus River as sort of a sacrificial river. You know, they kind of said, that's eh, ruined. Let's let's just go somewhere else and deal with that. And uh, we're going to let, 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 let them pollute this river at will, um, which was unfortunate, you know, for a number of reasons. One of them is that all the fish that were in there originally were probably killed and wiped out. Um, but the other one is that there were tons of farmers upstream and downstream um, and other water users who weren't on the Durango domestic water supply who still had to relied on the, the river, and it was choked with tailings. 
you know, almost constantly. Um, and it would be years before that problem would be fixed. Uh, eventually, that problem was fixed. I, I, you write in the book as a as a boy, you you know, you'd recreate on the on the river there, the Animas River. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, so the the problem of them dumping their tailings directly into the river was kind of fixed. Um, basically, in the '30s, the Colorado Supreme Court ended up forcing um, the mine owners to start containing their tailings which they did usually by building a um, big kind of tailings pond, which was lined by sand or sometimes tailings itself, and then they would dump the stuff into that. Um, it was a very imperfect system because it didn't take much to breach those ponds. And so when I was a kid, you would, you know, normally the water would appear to be pretty clean and fine, but occasionally, like, maybe there'd be a big spring runoff or something like that, and that would breach the pond and that would cause the river to be nasty for, you know, a number of days, and it, it would create fish kills for sure. Um, then after that, uh, you know, that problem after mining kind of went away, uh, that problem was, was mostly solved. But um, then you still had all of these abandoned mines, which were still creating acid mine drainage, which is fairly invisible. I mean, you can't really tell usually unless there's a great deal of iron or aluminum in it. Iron will turn the water orange and aluminum will turn it white. But other stuff like zinc, which is probably one of the more harmful ones, at least in the Animus River, uh, that does not show up. So the water looks fine, looks great, but the fish populations are not healthy. And that was a problem for a long time um, in the Animus River until – Finally, mining stopped, and there was a pretty concerted effort to, to try to reduce the metal loading and the acid mine drainage, um, which helped for a while. You write that this, uh, this story is really a tale of community, of mining, and of water, and the inextricable way they're entwined. Uh, there's an interesting history here, Durango and uh, you know, da- downstream, or, or uh, Silverton and then downstream Durango. Um, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about um, the, the the way people, especially in Silverton, viewed the economy. It, it was, they, they wanted mining, right? Mining provided good jobs. It was an equalizer as well. Uh, there was a brief period here where, where all the mines shut down. It had to go to a tourist economy. Some of the locals didn't like that, spoke derisively of it. And then mining came back yeah. for a while. Yeah, and this is, a, this is something that, you know, I think, you know, people in Utah for sure are going to be able to relate to this, um, people in Park City or even in Moab, where you had a, a basically communities that were built on mining. Um, and then eventually the mining, the market forced mining out. Basically, you know, when it comes down to it, an extraction economy is is a, a local extraction economy, like a, a mining town, is reliant on global commodity prices. Um, and basically in Silverton, in the uh, early 50s, metal prices that, that were being mined there went down um, for various other reasons. The mines shut down, and so basically – the decade of the 1950s was considered the black decade 
for a long time because they're basically all the mines shut down. Um, one of the things that Silverton had at the time was uh, it's it's in a beautiful place and it had a, a narrow gauge railroad that was still running at the time um, and it hadn't been abandoned yet, although the, the railroad the owners were thinking of abandoning it at that point. Um, and it also had like a sort of an old west feel that kind of lent itself to Hollywood. And so Hollywood actually started filming some movies up there. Um, and they started, the, the towns kind of turned to tourism because that's all they had. Because once mining left, there was nothing left. And so they really threw themselves into tourism. And that created, uh, it created some problems that I don't think people had really foreseen. But one thing it did is it, is it made the economy completely seasonal. So basically things would run during the whole summer and go after these train tourists. And then once summer ended, everything shut down and town was kind of bleak and dark. Um, it also, what you saw was that businesses that cater to the tourists kind of displaced the businesses that cater to locals. So, you know, you'd get your t-shirt shop would move in and kind of push out the grocery store. Uh, and uh, the hamburger joint would push out the, the bakery where people, the locals would go. And, you know, it was this kind of tension that built up for a while in uh, in Silverton during the 50s. And then at the end of the decade, uh, metal prices started to recover a little bit. And uh, actually, Standard Uranium, which was uh, a company started by Charlie Steen of Moab fame, they they were looking to diversify some of their, their portfolio a little bit out of uranium. And they came up and they looked at a, one of the big mines in Silverton that had been shut down and they found a way to open it back up and make it viable again. And so really you, you kind of have, you had uranium money from Moab ending up saving Silverton. I mean, that's how it was received locally for sure, is people were just so overjoyed. And, and finally their black decade was over and the Sunnyside Mine was reopened. And it continued to run from 1961 until 1991. So for 30 years, it made a pretty good run of it and employed a lot of people and kept the kept the town back in, as a mining town again. Um, but there was always tourism in the background, and there was always this sort of tension between the mining and the tourism uh, economies because they don't necessarily work off of each other. They don't necessarily work together very well. And so that, that tension was there. And once mining finally left in the early 90s, and the Sunnyside Mine shut down, then uh, tourism kind of took over. That was the only option left. Um, but a lot of people didn't like that and, and continue to resent it still and continue to look for ways to bring back some kind of basic industry to the economy, whether it's mining or something else. Uh, it's hard to say, you know, manufacturing, small manufacturing, that sort of thing. But they really don't want to rely entirely on tourism because that's, that's difficult in many ways. And this is a tension that we, you know, we, we see in Utah, a tension we see all over the, all over the West. Uh, and an explanation, I guess, of, of people, you know, you, you look on the face of it, what mining produces, one of the things mining produces is, you know, millions of gallons of poison water and uh, other problems with other extractive industries. Uh, this is, I guess, an explanation of why there's some people uh, who want these industries in this way of life. 
Yeah, yeah, I think so. I mean, I think that, um, you know, from from an outside perspective, if you're sitting outside of one of these towns and you're looking into it, you might think, well, why would why would they want mining to stick around? You know, it's it's dirty, it's polluting. Um, typically, housing prices in a mining town stay kind of stay level. They don't go crazy. They don't fluctuate according to anything because it, it's based on people getting actual wages um, and what they're what they're getting paid. Um, so you look in at that and you think, geez, you know, that doesn't sound so great. Uh, but when you're in that situation, you know, and you're faced with this choice between an extractive economy and a tourism economy, for example, you know, it's the difference in the type of work it is, uh, is so much different. You know, I mean, I think people feel, um, that mining or that sort of work is more of a real job. You know, it's a real blue collar kind of working class thing. Whereas working in a retail store selling t-shirts or selling bikes is, is not. Um, and then there's the wage difference, you know, which is gigantic. The people working in a mine could, uh, you know, they, they had a pretty good life. They, they, they made a pretty good wage. Um, and their, their housing prices were kept in check. Their cost of living was kind of kept in check. And they were all kind of in it together. And then, then it shifts to a tourism economy. And you've got like, you're opening up your store and the next door neighbor's opening up his store and everybody's opening up their store and you're competing against each other. Or you're working for one of these stores and you're getting paid wages that are probably below livable wages. Meanwhile, your housing costs are going up because suddenly your town is more desirable to people from outside who have a lot of equity to come in and buy a house. And so your housing prices are going up, your wages are going down. You can kind of see why people might uh, might bristle at that and might push back against it and look for some kind of industry to come back like mining. If we look at this issue writ large, does how does this get resolved? Okay, because these are these are deeply embedded cultural and economic fights, and uh, I, I don't know how this get. Is it a zero sum game? Uh, mining extractive industries eventually leave, and uh, it, it's all tourist economy, which some segment of the population doesn't want. Or can there be a mix? What's uh, how, well, how does this best get resolved? Yeah. Uh, I mean, I think that one thing that, that everybody needs to kind of accept is that the the tourism doesn't usually displace mining. Um, rather, it kind of replaces it. Mining leaves because the economy, because commodity prices drop. Um, basically, usually that's the big reason that mining goes away. It's just not profitable anymore. So... Um, and usually that has to do with globalism and, and all kinds of other things going on. So I think that's one thing that you have to realize that these aren't necessarily opposing forces. They can work together, or, but usually what happens is that mining leaves and that the, the people become desperate for something to replace it and replace it quick, and tourism is kind of the easiest answer. Um, I would personally hope that people would look for a more diverse economy, that rather than replace a one-horse mining economy with a one-horse tourism economy, that they try to cultivate other things um, in the economy 
as well, like small manufacturing is one. Um, in Silverton, for example, uh, you know, you could really, and this, this is an idea that's come up several times, is to make it into kind of a laboratory, an outdoor laboratory for studying acid mine drainage and studying new water treatment solutions because, um, like I've said, you know, this is, this is a, this is not an, a, a, an issue that's confined in, by any means to Silverton or that area. It's westwide in all of mining country. There is this problem of abandoned mines or non-abandoned mines leaking pollutants into the water, and it's global. I mean, it's worldwide. I'm over here in Bulgaria, and, you know, this is, this area has been the home to some massive mining environmental disasters, just beyond comprehension how big they are. And so there's a need to address this problem, um, especially acid mine drainage, because it's something that it will never stop. There's no way to – you can't just plug up a mine because the water will still get out with the acid somehow. And so you've still got mines in Spain and elsewhere that were Roman mines that are 4,000 years old that are still polluting the water. Um, there, so, uh, so you know, to, to maybe to make Silverton into a research station that gets federal funding for uh, studying these these issues, you know, that would be a way to improve the economy, and to do it in a way that that's reliant on the land and that's not reliant on tourists or on global fluctuations in metal prices or on the price of gasoline because when gasoline prices go up, nobody wants to drive all the way to Silverton. So, you know, uh, I, I think there are ways to make this work, um, but it's certainly not easy and it's certainly not going to happen quickly. It's going to take a lot of vision and hard work. We just have a few minutes left with Jonathan Thompson. We're talking about his book, River of Lost Souls. It's uh, new out from Tory House Press. And uh, Jonathan Thompson will be coming to Utah for several events early next month. I want to mention those. Uh, he will be at Booked on 25th Bookstore in Ogden, 6 p.m. on Monday, uh, April 2nd. Then on April 3rd, it's a Tuesday, 7 p.m. at the King's English Bookshop in Salt Lake City. And on Thursday, April 5th, 7 p.m., Back of Beyond Books in Moab. And uh, all of those events free and open to the uh, public. You can check out uh, Johnson Thompson's website, riveroflostsouls.com, for more information. And you can check out our website as well, upr.org. Uh, so, Jonathan Thompson, just a few minutes uh, left here. I want to uh, talk about, um, I guess, uh, look to the past and the future. You write very interestingly about sediment samples that scientists uh, take from Lake Powell. Uh, which in, and you can see like tree rings, the you know the pollutants that have come down over a long period of time. Yeah, uh, yeah, it's pretty fascinating. Um, so USGS scientists went in, I think it was back in 2011, maybe something like that, and they went in and did these core samples of the sediment that builds up um, in the, where the San Juan River runs into Lake Powell, where it becomes Lake Powell. And, I mean, it's mind-boggling because they, they, they were talking about it, and it's something like a meter per year of sediment is built up. So, like, three feet, you know, this huge amount of sediment per year. But So they go way deep with these core samples, and they pull them out, and then they can look at them, and they can actually 
visibly, you know, see differences in years. Yeah, just like you said, just like tree rings where you can see, um, you know, maybe there was more sediment or less sediment or maybe the sediment had different colors because of what was in something that was going on way upstream that year. Um, so, you know, if you were to go take one of those samples now, you would see for sure, I'm sure you would see the Gold King mine still in there. And so it, it's, you know, it's interesting because to me that, that, that image of this, this core sample going down, you can see what's going on, what's in the river. It's sort of like, uh, you know, a, a timeline of pollution in the, in the watershed. And in a lot of ways, like the, the watershed, the history of the watershed is a history of pollution because there's all these different things that have happened upstream from Lake Powell um, over over the centuries and uh, that have done different things, put different things in the water and have threatened to, you know, destroy it forever. Um, and so there's optimism and there's pessimism there. One is that it's this long timeline of pollution and it's horrible. But the other one is that the river is resilient and it, does continue to survive and fish do still live there and even in some of the worst mining impacted waters way upstream they are finding fish where they never expected to find them um, and so I, I think there's a lot of reasons for hope and optimism going into the future oh yeah you do I wonder if you could uh, expand that you, you do see you do see hope going forward I do yeah um, I think that you know for for a long time, before the Gold King spill in the early 2000s, the water quality up above Durango was getting to the point where, I mean, it was visibly improving. And you, you knew it was improving not only by water samples, but by the, the number of species of fish that were present and the numbers of fish, the fish density. And, uh, and we know that that's a result of cleanup because at one point, there was a, a big glitch. I won't go into the whole details here, but there was basically a glitch in the cleanup. Uh, there was a, a, a big setback, um, and so pollution increased for a while. And when it increased, those fish diversity and the fish numbers dropped. And so I think we just need to post Gold King. Hopefully, Gold King will be the spark that, that sets this fire of cleaning that water up again, of, of taking those earlier efforts and doubling them and tripling them and quadrupling them and, you know, really making a difference in the watershed that hopefully is permanent. And, uh, you know, I, I think, yeah, I think there is hope for sure. Well, we're out of uh, time. Uh, much else in the book, of course, uh, and it's out now. River of Lost Souls, the science, politics, and greed behind the Gold King mine disaster. Jonathan Thompson is the author and has joined us from his home in Bulgaria. And the website is riveroflostsouls.com. Jonathan Thompson, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. I enjoyed it.
Next up is Bread and Butter, a culinary chronicle with Jen Ashton and Lil Gilbert. Hey, Jen, tell me what your first job beyond babysitting right. was. My first job was in the food service industry. This will give you a little of Utah history here and date me some. But I worked at the Word Perfect Eatery. Word Perfect, of course, was a technology company started in Utah. It was at the Hard Disk Cafe. Oh, that's amazing. Right. <laughs> Worked at making sandwiches in the summer and catering their banquets all the other times. But it was a good first job. Um, How about you? I also worked with food. Um, when I was 16, I got a job at Provo Bakery. Oh, okay. So that's not surprising that you also had first job in the food service world because a lot of teenagers do. And so what kind of benefits do you feel you gained? from having that be your first job. Okay, benefits from working at the Provo Bakery. It was a charming, charming little place that was really popular back in the 90s. It was a brisk business. And they were also really well known for their bread and rolls. And they were delicious. A lot of people would <laughs> order loaves and loaves of bread, but they'd order it unsliced. And it looked homemade enough that they could deliver it to neighbors, you know, say around Thanksgiving or whatever, and no one would ever know the difference. Those are my kind of people. <laughs> so one of the benefits I received that I felt I gained in that was building a sense of cleanliness. You know, teenagers aren't known for that, but when you work in that environment, it's very important. I remember the first day on the job when I went into that cafe and back in that kitchen, I was tasked with taking every spice off of every shelf all around the kitchen, everything that was on the shelves, and cleaning off the shelves. It was hours of work to clean it, sanitize, and it was a great introduction the first day on the job of how important cleanliness was. Yeah, I learned the same thing. I learned how to handle food, and I learned habits then that I still value now, especially now when, when we're so aware of germs and everything. I learned about cross-contamination. I learned to keep my hands off the food. I learned how dirty money it can be, that you don't want to touch money in food, and just be really aware of my movements around food. Did you feel that it was part of what woke up an interest in cooking and food for you, or was that already present? I think, now that you say that, mm -hmm. I, I think that was actually probably a factor. When you get into an industrial food setting like that, it's a little Willy Wonka-ish, isn't mm -hmm. it? Where you're, you're kind of seeing the guts of how things, things that end up in your hands are actually produced. One thing that I was surprised about was that just because food is made on premises doesn't mean it's homemade. A, a lot of the food back then, anyway, I don't know what the situation is now, but a lot of food back then, you know, the frosting came out of buckets and the sauces came out of bags. And there's a whole middleman food industry that doesn't sell to grocery stores where you'd expect them to sell but to restaurants and cafeterias and other places that serve us. And is that mainly for cost efficiency? Yeah, I don't know it's necessarily a bad thing because it is much more efficient to wash and chop and deliver food that's already partly prepared. Another thing I learned at Provo Bakery was, and they were masters at this, is what delicious 
looks like. When you're presenting food, there are certain things that draw people to it. You know, how you stack the bear claws, how the color of the frosting on the donuts, um, how things look. It's an art, and if you can develop the presentation, I'd say that's a good 30% of making food delicious. So along with picking up on some habits of cleanliness, somewhat demystifying cooking, even giving you some insight into the art of cooking, one of the other benefits of having that job when I was that age and it was summer was the walk-in refrigerator. (laughs) (laughs) And the leftovers. I have to say, the leftovers were always one of my favorite after a big banquet to go home with. How fun. Well, thanks for joining us for another Bread and Butter. This is Jen Ashton. And this is Lael Gilbert for Bread and Butter. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Salt Lake City Weekly, a Utah news source since 1984, covering news, politics, music, and more in Salt Lake City and beyond. Available weekly at 1,800 locations across the Wasatch Front or online at cityweekly.net. You're listening to Utah Public Radio, a statewide member-supported service of Utah State University and the College of Humanities and Social Sciences. KUSR Logan, KUSK Vernal, KUSL Richfield, KUST Moab, KCEU Price, KUSUFM Logan. Also heard at upr.org or on the UPR app.